A very good evening to you. I'm sorry we're a few minutes late. It's definitely our fault. Uh, Hilary Ben was here at 6.15. Uh, we're just waiting for a few people to come in at the uh, very end and also, also um, miking him up. Uh, my name's Tony Travers. I'm a professor in the government department here at the LSE. Uh, this is a British government at LSE public conversation, as it's called. And this evening, it's uh, an opportunity to hear from Hilary Benn about Britain and Europe. Uh, there's a hashtag for Twitter users, hashtag Europe at the bottom there. Feel free to use it. Um, I'll just say a few words by way of introduction. Hillary Benn... Hilary Benn MP, Right Honourable Hilary Benn MP, is the Labour Member of Parliament for Leeds Central. He was born in London to Tony and Caroline Benn, both of whom had a significant role in politics of the left in Britain. He was a member of Ealing Council, Deputy Leader of the Council in the late 1980s, and then went on to roles in the Association of London Government and the Association of Metropolitan Authorities. Following the 1997 general election, Hillary was appointed as Special Advisor to David Blunkett MP, then Secretary of State for Education and Employment, and became the MP for Leeds Central after a by-election in 1999. In government, he served as International Development Secretary, as a Minister in the Home Office, as Secretary of State, at the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and as Shadow Leader of the House of Commons and Shadow Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government after Labour lost office in 2010. He's currently the Shadow Foreign Secretary and this evening will say a few words by way of introduction about Britain and Europe and then we will start a conversation on the stage and then open it out so you can continue it. So ladies and gentlemen, Hilary Benn. Uh, well, good evening. First of all, can I thank you, Tony, and the LSE for your very kind invitation to come here this evening. Can I thank you for giving up your time to be here. Um, 41 years ago this year, we had a referendum on our place in Europe in the summer of 1975. Um, I took part in that referendum, I campaigned for Britain to leave the common market in 1975. Now, for students of history, there are some great similarities between what happened 41 years ago and what's happening here in Britain at the moment. There was a Prime Minister with a party that was split over Europe, and the Prime Minister eventually decided the only way he could deal with it was to say, we're going to have a referendum with the British people, and I'm going to have a renegotiation to try and improve our terms of membership of the then common market. And the Prime Minister, of course, was Harold Wilson. At the time, the Labour Party was split. Indeed, a majority of the Labour Party, Labour MPs, uh, the Labour Party conference were in favour of leaving. A minority were in favour of remaining in. And the Conservatives were united in their support for Britain's place in Europe. 41 years on... This is a repetition, but in mirror image. The Labour Party is united uh, in support of remaining members of the European Union, and the Conservatives have become increasingly and bitterly divided. And the Prime Minister, who a few years ago said, no, I don't think a referendum is the right thing to do, eventually decided the only way he could manage the problems within his party was to uh, 
start down the course that has led to the choice that all of us are going to make on the 23rd of June. Just to quickly explain how Labour came to change its mind, we sulked after having lost the referendum. Uh, but in 1988, Jacques Delors famously came to the TUC uh, Congress in Bournemouth. And he got up and he made a speech in which he said to the assembled brothers and sisters, um, look, I lay before you today a vision of a social Europe in which workers' rights matter and we work together in Europe in order to try and achieve those. And it was a message which was received with great interest because at that time, like now, we had a Tory government in Britain and Mrs Thatcher was not doing wonders for the rights of people at work and the rights of trade unions at the time. And Ron Todd, who was the General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers' Union, got up afterwards and said, there's a new card game in town, it's in Brussels, and we better learn the rules pretty fast. And within the space of a year, both the trade union movement and the Labour Party changed their policies on Europe to support our continued membership and have done so ever since. And Europe was good at its word because it delivered in time a right to paid holiday. People forget that there was no statutory right to paid holiday for all workers in Britain until it arrived courtesy of the EU Working Time Directive. Limits on working time, improved paternity and maternity leave, rights for agency and temporary workers. And one of the arguments that I advance for why we should stay in is that is Europe providing a floor of protection for workers right across the European Union if we voted by some disaster to leave. Question, as a Labour politician, I would say, would you trust British workers' rights with a Conservative government which would then be free to do whatever they wanted with those entitlements? Well, I certainly wouldn't. This is the most important decision we will have made as a nation for at least 41 years. It's even more important now because of the way in which the European Union has developed and the way in which the world in which we live has changed in a very profound way uh, since I campaigned as a young man in that referendum. What is the essential argument for us remaining in the European Union? It is not an argument that says Europe is perfect. It cannot be approved upon. We love it in all its splendour and its glory. It isn't. There is change that we want as a party to see in Europe. But it's a bit like your family. Your family can sometimes irritate the hell out of you. But it's a very different decision to say, right, in a fit of pique, when you've had a particularly bad row, I'm off. What has Europe given us? It has given us, in essence, jobs, investment, growth, security and influence in a changing world. And that, at its heart, is the argument for remaining members. We're not arguing that Britain could not survive as a nation outside, but it will be better for jobs, investment, growth, security and influence in the world if we remain members. We have access, tariff-free, to the largest single market in the world. Just under 45% of our exports go to Europe. We sell just under 2,000 cars every day, to take a practical example, to the rest of the European Union, tariff-free. Japan and America trying to sell cars into Europe pay a 10% tariff. 
Now, the first question that we need to ask those who are campaigning for us to leave is a very simple one. Will you please explain to us what our trading relationships will be with the largest single market in the world? 500 million consumers on our doorstep, representing a quarter of global GDP. Will you please explain to us what trading relationship will replace the one that we have at present? And the honest answer is they cannot provide a response, partly because they can't agree amongst themselves. There are some who say, well, we could be like Norway. Well, Norway indeed has access to the single market, but for that privilege it has to pay a sum of money to the EU budget that is almost the same per head of population as we pay. It has to agree to free movement of workers. It has to accept the rules relating to being part of the single market. The only difference compared with our position is Norway has to accept the rules, but it can't make any of them because it's outside the club. We play a part in making those rules because we are part of the European Union. And it is why the Norwegian Prime Minister has said, well, I really wouldn't swap what you've got today for what we've got because it's not a very good deal, is it? Or they say, well, we can negotiate our own deals in the world. Well, if you, Boris Johnson talked about Canada recently, it took them seven years. And one minute he said, yeah, we could be like Canada and negotiate a deal. And the next minute he appeared to be saying, well, perhaps Canada isn't the best example. My argument's very simple. We have the best possible trade deal with Europe because we're part of the single market. We have access to 53 other markets in the world because of the trade deals that the European Union has negotiated, including deals either current or in the process of being negotiated with 90% of Commonwealth countries. Hence the argument, oh, we can't trade with the Commonwealth because of the EU, is frankly a bunch of rubbish. What would replace it? And this is not an academic question because... They can't answer it. If you can't answer the question, it creates uncertainty. If you're in business, what does business hate? It hates a number of things, but one of the things it hates is uncertainty. And this is a decision that will have very serious consequences for people's livelihoods, their jobs. Because that car industry example, and think of all the investment that has come into Britain because we have access to the single market. The British car industry, which looked as if it was on its way out, has recovered, in part because we're in the European Union. So that is the argument on jobs. Secondly, on security, we live in an uncertain and a changing world. The fact that Europe stood together to say to President Putin after he undertook his adventure in Ukraine, this is not acceptable and we will place sanctions upon you, and they are still there, helps to protect Ukraine and helps to protect our own security. The fact that Europe played a part in negotiating the Iran deal, Cathy Ashton, a leading role, Federica Mogherini, towards the end of the process. The fact that Europe is cooperating in a naval operation off the coast of East Africa, Operation Atalanta, to try and deal with the problem of piracy, I'd, I didn't know until someone told me, it's run out of Northwood in northwest London. It's an example of European nations working together. The fact that we have the European arrest warrant means that when that... One of the four uh, gentlemen who tried to blow up Londoners two weeks after 7-7, their plot failed because their bombs didn't go off, and he hot-footed it to Rome. He was brought back under the European arrest warrant to face justice here, was tried, convicted, and is serving a term of imprisonment. That helps to ensure our security. And the, th the third point I'd make is about our influence in the world. 
Now, the, the Leave campaign appeared to suggest because our sovereignty has been weakened, we are somehow diminished as a nation. I just tell you on the basis of my experience as a cabinet minister, both as the International Development Secretary and as the Environment Secretary in the last Labour government, I have seen with my own eyes the importance of Europe standing together to try and bring about change for the better in the world. In the run-up to the Glen Eagle Summit in 2005, the fact that the nations of Europe agreed new commitments on aid and debt relief for the poorest countries in the world had an impact in persuading others to do the same when we got to Scotland. The fact that Europe has turned up time after time at the global climate negotiations and said, here is our offer on the table, instead of 28 different offers, here is what we are prepared to do, and look at the progress Europe has made in reducing its greenhouse gas emissions since 1990, while at the same time the economies of Europe have grown considerably, is a demonstration, both of them, of how we need to work with our neighbours if we are going to deal with the challenges that we face in the world, whether it is the refugee crisis, whether it is climate change, or security. We are stronger. We, are, we have more influence in the world as a nation because we are part of the European Union, as well as being in the Commonwealth, part of NATO, and a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And the final point I want to make is this. If none of those arguments convince... Just reflect on this one thing. Why did Europe, as we call the European Union, why did it come into existence after the end of the Second World War? Because the, those who founded it reflected on the slaughter and horror of the Second World War, the First World War, those of you who have visited the graveyards in France and Belgium, and you walk down those lines of beautifully tended gravestones, the flower of two generations of young Europeans of your age who died. My uncle, Michael, in the Second World War. My great-uncle, Oliver, in the First World War. The names, the ages, and some of the gravestones simply bear these words. A soldier of the Great War, known unto God, because nobody else knows whose son, brother, uncle or nephew lies beneath those beautifully tended graveyards. Now, if that isn't an argument for honouring what those who founded the European Union did, they brought to an end and have demonstrated in the 70-odd years since that what was the previous experience of Europeans, century after century of conflict and war and slaughter, and they realised by politics, the means by which we are able to transform our lives and our world, they said if we bring the nations together economically, we can make future conflict in Europe unthinkable. And they succeeded in that aim. And one of the problems in our society today is we have a tendency sometimes to take the world as it is today for granted and assume it was ever thus and it always will be so. And therefore, for all of those reasons, I think the right thing to do for our economy, for our communities, for our families, for our place in the world, our security, and our ability, when our time has come, to leave the world in a better shape than we found it, 
all of that points in favour of remaining in the European Union. And I would encourage you, please vote. I would encourage you to talk to your families. Because someone said to me today, during the gay marriage referendum in uh, Ireland, younger people were very much in favour, the older generations were not so keen. And a campaign was run under the title, Tell Your Granny. <laughs> and I do think we should... Speak to our families. I started by talking about our family, and I'll end by talking about our family. We should talk to our families, because we have to weigh this all up. And this is not about whether there are things about Europe that irritate people. It is about what is in our best interests as a nation, the best interests of our European neighbours and the world. And I think all of that leads to the conclusion that we should vote to remain. But you know what? It's your responsibility. You've got one vote. You've got one vote. You've got one vote. I've got one vote. Tony's got one vote. Please use it. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Um, now you made a very clear case there for the reason that people should vote to stay in the EU. Britain should vote to stay in the EU. But some of the points that you made, one of them in particular, the one about workers' rights, was a very clear reason, and the rationale is that if you're, like yourself, Labour Party politician, that by voting to stay in the EU, we can give power to that institution to protect, in your terms, yeah. people in Britain from a Conservative government which would do something you don't want to. Doesn't putting it like that precisely make the point of the Eurosceptics that it yeah. is dispersing power away from the United Kingdom so that people in Europe vote and decide on matters that are, in their view, things that should be sovereign to the United Kingdom yeah. Parliament? Well, this is, this is a fundamental part. It makes part. David Cameron's job that much more difficult in trying to sell it to his voters. Well, we, I mean, we need to take the argument about sovereignty, and I'm, I'm very glad, Tony, that you've raised it head on. What would be the alternative if there wasn't a European agreement on a common floor of workers' rights to prevent a race to the bottom? Then you'd have a race to the bottom. And then workers in Britain would be saying, crumbs, all the investment is now going to country A because they've got less in the way of workers' rights. That's the first argument. The second point about sovereignty, I would argue, is this. We have chosen, as a sovereign nation to participate in the European Union because we think that by, in, in the jargon, pooling our sovereignty, which I would describe as working with others to take decisions jointly, we can benefit ourselves and others. That is the argument for doing it. We took it as a sovereign parliament by passing the 1972 European Communities Act. The British people decided, I was on the losing side in 75, yet we're going to remain in the common market. Every other change in the treaty has been agreed by our sovereign parliament. And yes, parliament can vote to leave the European Union. So we have not given up our sovereignty in perpetuity. We have chosen to mix it with others for uh, mutual benefit. Take a, a, a mundane but a very important example, the EU bathing water directive. Now, what has the EU bathing water directive given us? Clean beaches. Now, I sometimes think that some of the Leave campaigners are longing for the day in the past when sovereign British sewage was able to flow onto the beaches of Cornwall, travel across and end up in Brittany, untrammeled by European legislation that prevented their free passage. The point is this. 
Have we benefited by working together as Britain and France and all the other European countries to improve French beaches and British beaches by saying we're going to set standards about uh, how much sewage we let out into the sea? Have we gained from that? Of course we have. The fact that next year when you go to Europe and you use your phone, you won't pay any roaming charges is because we have shared sovereignty with other European countries to make that happen. There are lots of other examples that we could give. It's sovereignty for a purpose, and the question is whether you think the benefits of sharing the sovereignty have been worth it or not. And the final point, and it's, I would make, in a sense, my voters in Leeds might say, oh, I don't think much for sovereignty in Leeds. We've elected a member of Parliament who's committed to voting to get rid of the bedroom tax, but blimey, we find all those other members of Parliament we don't elect, the Tory ones, have decided they're going to keep the bedroom tax. What happened to sovereignty in Leeds? The fact is, we are the United Kingdom, we've agreed to pool it, and for particular purposes, we've agreed to do the same in Europe. And the question is the benefits, because you can have an academic argument about it, but do you think it's the right thing to do? My argument is it is the right thing to do, because look at the benefits it's brought us. Okay, moving on to the Labour Party. I mean, you're the shadow foreign secretary, and... There's research that shows the role of the main opposition party in a referendum of the kind that we're about to hold is important because if the Prime Minister is out on his own, one party is out on its own, it's very different if the party that's normally in opposition to them is alongside them. And yet, although Labour MPs are almost entirely on the same side on this issue, they are not clearly on the same side on all issues at the moment. So is there a... A, a risk here that because the Labour Party is spending a lot of its energy and time fighting other struggles, that it doesn't provide anything like the uh, pressure that it would like or it would otherwise be exerting on this debate? Well, I would say there's only one struggle that matters for, for the party that I'm proud to be a member of between now and the 23rd of June, and it's the subject that we're discussing uh, tonight. Um, look, there are some... Well, there are lots of people in the Labour Party who who take the view, that's why I use the example of workers' rights, that this is something we feel very strongly about. There was a time when the Tories were thinking about trying to weaken workers' rights in Britain as part of the renegotiation. Now, the trade union movement and the Labour Party said to David Cameron and uh, um, Philip Hammond and others, I really wouldn't do that if I were you, because it's not going to help us to win a referendum in favour of us remaining members of the European Union. And there's change that we want to see in terms of uh, workers' rights. There's debates about uh, TTIP, which I know is often raised on the left. I just say this about TTIP. I mean, we're not going to accept, as, as the Labour Party, uh, uh, any agreement that in any way damages our ability to run a publicly owned national health service. But I tell you what, um, the European Parliament isn't going to accept that either. And using the same analogy that I used a moment ago about workers' rights, imagine we leave and then we want to negotiate a trade relationship with the United States of America as a sovereign, independent uh, um, uh, United Kingdom. Do you trust David Cameron to protect publicly run services in reaching a trade agreement with the United States of America? Well, I would seriously have my doubts about that. So actually... Being in Europe, both because of the collective negotiating strength that we have got 
and the fact that we have directly elected representatives in the European Parliament who've been doing a grand job on this, that is a good protection for us. So we're working a slightly different side of the street, I think is what I would say to you, uh, Tony, because we have, of course, big political disagreements with David Cameron and the Conservative government on a whole range of things. We reach the same conclusion in the end, but we come from different routes, and I think that is the strength of our campaign, and Alan Johnson is leading it. Uh, I mean, he's a great spokesperson uh, on behalf of the party, and we have drawn the conclusion that we should have the Labour in for Britain campaign. We will argue our case with Labour voters and uh, would-be Labour voters and people who voted Labour in the past but may not have done so recently, and the Conservatives will argue in the way that they do. In the end, we, those who are campaigning for Remain want the same outcome because we agree that it's better for the nation, albeit interpreted in different ways, for us to remain in. So I think you will see that voice increasingly loudly expressed over the remaining uh, days and, what, just under three months of the campaign. And including from the Labour leader and the Shadow Chancellor, whose views in the past have been substantially different from those you're expressing. They They are both very clear. Whatever they have said in the past, they're both absolutely clear, as are all of us, the Shadow Cabinet United, the vast bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party. We are campaigning to remain in the European Union. And if you look at speeches that Jeremy in particular has made recently, that is crystal clear. And finally, and I'll open it up to the audience after one more question uh, from from me, and that is, um, why do you think... I'm asking you to comment, act as a political commentator on the Conservative Party, largely here, but why do you think there is this very large, well, it's a substantial group of Eurosceptic MPs in the House of Commons for whom this issue transcends everything else? And indeed, to the point that, even if your side wins on June the 23rd, chances are they will want to move on to another referendum, i.e., why is it, what is it about this issue that so exercises this substantial and, frankly, powerful minority of members of Parliament? Well, I don't, I don't think we're going to move on to another referendum. Crumbs, once, one every 41 years is quite enough for me, I would say. You don't think they'll just roll, go away, though, do you? I mean, if, it, I, if we vote to leave, that's it. But if we vote to stay, the Eurosceptics surely are not just going to say, well, that's it, we give up. Well... Uh, that is definitely a matter for them, and I'm not sure I'm the person best qualified to... I'm asking you to political comment. No, 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 no but I mean, even so, to, uh, look, you have to take what they say at face value. For them, uh, the principle of sovereignty in all decisions is much, much more important than the benefits of working with others to achieve what I think are good things for people in Britain. Uh, they're prepared to take the risk for whatever reason with our trading relationships because that is more important that we get out... Uh, than that we maintain what we have at the moment, which is the best possible trade deal of all, because we're part of the single market and benefit, as I said, from the trade deals that Europe has uh, negotiated. Um, But it is interesting, and others may be better qualified, to explain why the Conservative Party has made this journey, you know, passing the Labour Party in the middle, that we've gone this way and they've gone that way. Um, But they feel very, very strongly about this uh, indeed, and... David Cameron, in the end, had no option but to follow Harold Wilson's lead in saying to his ministers, OK, for the period of referendum, you can be on different sides. That is an act of political pragmatism. 
in the same way as, as Wilson did it in 1975. Uh, they think other things are more important. That's what I would observe, but I think they're wrong. OK, right, let's open it to some questions from the floor. We'll always have plenty of questions from the floor. Right, I can see one gentleman's hand there, green shirt to start off with. And chap over there. Next, dark jumper, yep. Right, uh, Martin Chu, just uh, an interested observer. Um, interested in your views, slightly off the subject, I expect, on referenda or referendums, um, whether you think... I think it's gone particularly wrong because of the migration crisis hitting, and I'm very pessimistic about the, the vote because of that. I think the population are more likely going to be voting about that than on any other yeah. argument. Yeah. Can I ask your views on the general concept of referenda and how good they are as a political device? Yeah. Okay, great question. And we'll okay, take, right. We'll just take one more and then we'll come back. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Hi, Hilary. Um, my name's Gervais. Um, your name's what? Gervais. Gervais, hi. Um, my question is, uh, there's um, been quite a lot of campaigning already, particularly from the Tories, which is along the, you know, the project fear kind of line. And I think it was really great to hear you today giving some quite positive messages about, um, uh, about the EU and staying in. In the Scottish referendum, arguably towards the end of the campaign, some commentators said it was the fear messages that turned it in the final weeks. And, you know, there was Gordon Brown's speech and everything about think about your children's future and the risk of going down that route. I mean, do you think in this referendum, uh, you know, people could get negatively swayed if the message is always along the lines of Project Fear? Is there a, is there a risk in that? Or is that ultimately what wins referendum, people being cautious and risk-averse? And is that maybe the way to go? Um. Well, uh, Martin, first of all, if I may, may call you by your first name, is that all right? You can call me whatever you like in return. Uh, and people sometimes do, so. Um, look, what is the place of, of uh, referenda in our system? I think the reason why Labour gave the British people the decision on whether we would remain in the common market in 1975 was because the Edward Heath's government had taken us into the common market without... Uh, seeking the consent of the British people. And I, I would argue, as a matter of principle, if you're going to transfer... It goes back to your question, Tony, about sovereignty. If you're going to transfer part of your sovereignty to a, uh, an international organisation in that way, you should ask the consent of the British people. So that was a matter of principle, um, and that was right. And I'm proud of the fact that it was a Labour... It was the Labour Party, it was the Labour government that gave uh, the people that choice. In general, I'm not in favour of referendum, but there are particular cases. Are you going to have a congestion charging scheme in Manchester? Are you going to have an elected mayor in Leeds? What are going to be the pub opening hours in Wales? And other examples like that. Uh, but uh, other things, no, I think there is... I think it's hard to find, if you like... Uh, well, one group are local and the other is constitutional, and we had it on the AV referendum, changing the voting system. Uh, I was right to have a referendum. I campaigned to move to AV. I lost. Um, indeed, having lost in that and having lost in 75, I'm hoping I'll be third time lucky <laughs> uh, in this particular case. But more generally, uh, no, because I think you elect members of parliament to uh, take decisions. We are representatives and, and not delegates. I don't get elected and then say, right, my brain is completely empty of all thoughts. Could you just tell me what to think? 
but you could hold me to account and you can kick me out. And that's the way our democracy works. You're absolutely right about the impact of migration and immigration on this referendum. And obviously the, the refugee crisis, as it has affected Europe, bearing in mind that the vast bulk of those who have fled uh, the horror of the civil war in Syria have ended up in Turkey, in Iraq, in Lebanon, where the population has increased by 25%. That is like 16 million people coming to live in Britain. 16 million people. And Jordan, which has 630,000 registered refugees. And in Britain, what have we taken? About around 5,000 Syrians have made their own way to claim asylum. And at last count, the government had offered a place to, I think by Christmas, it was 1,000 vulnerable people, you know, and look at Germany and so on. And as we sit here now, I don't know if the the summit in Brussels is still going on. I suspect it probably is. Uh, The thing is that free movement is two-way. Those who come from Europe to work, they contribute more than they take out. They help to pay for things. Uh, they've contributed to the operation of the economy. There's lots of Brits who go and work in other European countries, students who go to travel and to study, Brits who've retired to Spain. So it works both ways. The refugee uh, uh, crisis, we need strong international institutions if we're going to deal with that. Now, the real lesson for me is how can the world be more effective in dealing with horrors like the Syrian civil war? Because you want to try and prevent that rather than deal with the consequences. But you have put your finger on that. I just make this observation. If anybody thinks, thinking of the refugees fleeing persecution, that if we leave the European Union, having arrived at Calais, they will suddenly say, oh, crumbs, Britain's left the European Union. Oh, oh, we better turn around and go somewhere else. I mean, they're not going to do that. Because it doesn't matter whether we're in or out, when it comes to refugees, we help to create the 1951 Convention. We have a long and honourable and very proud tradition in this country of giving people shelter from persecution, and that will continue, and long may it continue. Uh, Gervais, um, I call it Project Fact rather than Project Fear because it seems to me it's perfectly reasonable to say to people, right, this is what we've got now, and it's the argument I made earlier, here's what we've got now, um, you need to ask those who are telling you to do something else, okay, so what's the alternative going to look like? And they can't answer it. It is very reminiscent, you mentioned the Scottish referendum, of the currency issue. Because after uh, um, the political parties not in Scotland said, well, you know, you won't be able to use the currency even though you say you want, Alex Salmond suddenly turned up one day and said, I offer you not one, not two, but three different potential alternative currencies. But he couldn't say how any of them were going to work. And in the end, there are, the polls show there's a sort of 20-ish percent who are absolutely solid for staying in. There's around 20% who have absolutely made up their mind they want to leave. And then in the middle, you've got leaning in, leaning out, and those who say, I'm not entirely sure. And some people will go in, I think, to the polling booth and say, I don't like everything about it, but is this really a sensible thing to do? Is it the moment to be taking a step into the unknown and to uncertainty? I mean, you look at the figures. I was there. Well, I wrote these down because they were really striking. Now, you may say, well, business would say it. But of the polls that have been done, there's not a single survey of business opinion that has shown anything other but that businesses 
based in Britain, want us to stay. Uh, the Chambers of Commerce, it was two to one in favour. The IOD, it was two to one in favour. The Engineer Employers, eight to one in favour. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, cars we export, eight to one in favour. The CBI, ten to one in favour. The Federation of Small Businesses, which is in effect a lot of individuals, so it was really a poll of their individual opinion, because they don't tend to employ large numbers of people, five to four in favour. Now, that matters. They're in favour of remaining in for a reason, because they're businesses, they don't like uncertainty, and the decisions they take about how many people they employ, what investment is made, affects all of us in our communities. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to say you've got to weigh what we know about what we've got now against uncertainty, because that's what the choice is, and I think argue then that the evidence is we're better off, and then if you can persuade people by other arguments, then we'll use all of the ones that are going to work in all of the sizes and all of the colours. Okay? Thanks. Okay. Gentleman there. Um, and um, woman there, I can see, with glasses. Sorry to... Rep- just. Uh, <coughs> I had uh, two, two questions. Uh, I had two questions. I'm not sorry. My name is um, Adam Somerset. Um, so I couldn't quite... What's your name? My name is uh, Adam Somerset. I'm a, I'm a visitor from Wales. I had two okay. questions. Uh, yep. one, one was uh, historical. I was wondering to what extent... You mentioned the uh, Jack Delors speech, which yep. I remember well. I was wondering to what extent the presidency of Roy Jenkins, the Labour Party in, of the Commission, had in um, affecting the mood in the, within the Labour Party and shifting the rather narrow agenda of the EEC. And the, the second question was that um, I was actually the, uh, the very first generation to be beneficiary of membership. In the summer of 1973, I couldn't find work and hitchhiked to Berlin and found work within five hours. Uh, my reading of the referendum is essentially the over-50s wish to take away the rights of this audience to uh, move and work within Europe forever. Uh, irrevocably, and I was wondering why the in-campaign had been hesitant in actually, uh, uh, you've mentioned it yourself, in actually emphasising this, essentially taking away the uh, freedom of movement. Now, before you hand the microphone on, I'm going to come to you in a moment, but I, actually did, I think the gentleman too along also had his hand up, so let's do him, and then we'll, woman at the back, sorry, I mean, I'm not my, it's my fault. Yep. I'm Hem Agrawal, visiting from India, uh, sir, I would like to know that in 1975, you opposed, Labour Party opposed joining. What were the key reasons at that particular point of time of Labour opposing to be a part of Europe? Yep. Okay, fine. And then you've been very patient at the back. Yep. Oh, yes, can you pass, take the microphone? <coughs> Sorry, I thought you had a microphone. Thank you. I'm Julia Ebner from the Quilliam Foundation. I'm from Austria originally. And uh, the Quilliam Foundation is a London-based counter-extremism think tank. And coming from that perspective, I'm, I'm mostly researching into European, the European search for a common counter-extremism strategy. So coming from that perspective, I would be very interested in hearing your views on how uh, EU membership impacts uh, Britain's security f- and is especially the threat that comes from terrorism and how that would influence European coordination in counter-terrorism but also counter-extremism efforts, so both on the sharp end, intelligence sharing, and on the, rather on the soft end and prevention of yeah. terrorism. Thank you. Great. Okay. Um, 
Well, Adam, first of all, uh, the, the thing I would say about Roy Jenkins from a Labour perspective, because you asked the question about how it impacted on the Labour Party, of course, Roy Jenkins had been the leader of the Group of 69 who voted with uh, Edward Heath to take us into the common market as it then was um, through the European Communities Act. Now, the view at the time of the majority of the Labour Party was not terribly well disposed towards Roy Jenkins because he'd done it. And I suppose I, I, I mix my answer to you with uh, my answer to your colleague who's sitting to your left. W what was our argument at the time? It was about sovereignty, so I'm, I'm familiar with the argument. But we also thought it's a capitalist club, basically. And thirdly, there was uh, an argument that if we want to make progress, well, we can do it at home. We can pass all these laws ourselves. Now, the reason why the Delors speech and the experience of the Thatcher government had such a profound impact is because people in the Labour movement and the trade unions realised, well, what about the period when you haven't got a Labour government and a Tory government is doing bad things to you and your rights? And, and then people's eyes were opened to the advantage of working with others to secure rights that then no subsequent government can take away because they have been agreed at a European level, people pooling their sovereignty to decide that that is going to be the case. And, look, as I've got older, I've, A, I've changed my mind on the issue, I understand much better now why Edward Heath was so passionate about us joining Europe. It was because of his experience in the war and before. I mean, and he wrote about it. And he was true to himself. He'd seen what fascism had done. He'd been through the war. And like uh, Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann, he said, you know, this, this is really something that is good to do to prevent the horrors that I, as, as he put it, you know, I have seen with my uh, own eyes. So you... And the world has changed too. It really has. Um, the, the second thing I would say is that it's a very interesting way that you've put it, and I suppose it would be part of my Tell Your Granny campaign, because it is in, it's important. Because who is the referendum result going to affect more than anybody else? Well, you know, anyone, all of you here, because in whatever many years' time, I'm not going to be around, but you are. This is about your future, your opportunity the future of your children. And I, personally, I think it would be to betray the legacy of those who founded the coal and steel community originally in the interests of bringing peace to the continent of Europe to say, well, never mind that, we're off. Uh, and as an island nation, take the example of climate change, we are an island nation. We're surrounded by the sea. If we don't deal with dangerous climate change, scientists tell us the sea level's going to rise. Now, that's going to affect us. It's going to affect Bangladesh, the coast of China, lots of parts of the world. It is in our national self-interest to tackle dangerous climate change. Why would you want to walk away of cooperation with your neighbours that gives you the best chance, both of Europe doing something about it and persuading other countries around the world to shoulder their responsibility and play their part too? Why would you want to do that? Because if... If the, the ultimate logic is lots of separate countries doing their own thing, it weakens our ability 
to deal with conflict. It weakens the chance we have of tackling climate change. Why would you want to do that? And it's an argument that we must make with some passion because this is not a, it's not just a, well, I've counted on this side and counted on that, mm, well, on balance, maybe. Some people might do that. But there are really strong arguments as to why it is our interest. And we need to have a conversation between the generations because you are right. Younger people are much more likely to vote to remain. And as, as, as the age graph goes up, older people... I, in, ironically, in some sense, because they're the ones who have the memory from their parents, as I do, uh, of what happened in the Second World War. So we need to get out there and say, look, this, depend, this is going to affect me. And it gives you, as uh, young people, talking to your parents and your grandparents, to say, now, please think about us and our future. This is not about turning the clock back. We cannot go back to the past. We can't rewind the dial to 1957 and say, well, everything was fantastic there. It wasn't. We've made a lot of progress, and things are better in many, many respects in our society. We need to think about the future. This is not a vote to say that we are unhappy about what's happened in the past. Anyway, that's how I'd express it. Um, Now, security and terrorism and extremism. Well, I think just... By definition, standing together as a group of nations enables us to cooperate, to share information. I mentioned the European uh, arrest warrant and allows us to use our soft power in the world and the sanctions against uh, Ukraine are a good example. The sanctions against Burma. Look what's happening in Burma now with the the election and uh, although the constitution prevents uh, Aung San Suu Kyi from actually becoming... Uh, the leader, there's no doubt who's in charge of that country now. So it is a a power for good. Um, In a world in which we need all of the international institutions that we have to work effectively to deal with those three big challenges. Because whether it is people moving around the globe because of climate change, and I have met people who upped sticks and moved in the middle of a drought because it had stopped raining where they were living. And they pitched up away, away, and they were living in these benders made of twigs bent into the ground, covered with scraps of rubbish that they had taken from the town rubbish tip. That's what people do when they are desperate. If it stopped raining where we lived and we couldn't feed our families, you know what? It's what we do as well. People flee in conflict. You don't, as a parent, I've got four children, put your children in a boat and take the risk of travelling across the waters, especially the winter waters uh, between Turkey and Greece, if you are not desperate to escape the horror. And thirdly, people moving in search of a better life. Why is working with countries for them to improve their own development, good governance, peace, stability, economy, investment, growth, jobs, income, education for girls? Why does that matter? Because that is going to help more people to prosper in the land in which they were born rather than having to flee somewhere else in order to find a better life. These are the great challenges of this century. And it seems to me self-evident that you're in a better position to deal with those if you cooperate rather than separate. Okay, right, loads of hands. Um, We're warming up, good. Up here, one over there, is that it? Yes. So, um, there, yes. Brown, teeth, brown, uh, yes. Oh, sorry, it's two. Take you two on this row here together, so just where you're standing, yes, those two, and then... Over there. Hi, I'm Sam. Thank you Sam, very much hi. for coming to speak to us. Um, I just have like, 
quick question. As you say, the EU is like any family, not perfect. I was wondering if you were Prime Minister and you got to go to Brussels and renegotiate a new deal, what would you like to see be reformed? Um, thanks. And um, hi, my name's Nina. Um, I have two questions. The first one is about how, um, if you think Alan Johnson is doing a good enough job at capitalising on Labour's united front at a time where a lot of the media focuses on Labour divisions, and whether in general, this is the same question, whether in general the Remain campaign is actually doing enough, because so far it seems quite feeble in, in comparison to the kind of Brexit campaign, which is very much in the headlines, um, and what they could do more to you've given quite an inspiring speech but I don't see much of that passion widespread in the Remain campaign. My second question is as the Europe is moving in a more kind of right-wing direction with the rise of populist um, like groups and the rise of actual like populist governments as well, do you still think that it will offer the same checks and balances on our Tory government or will it actually become more right-wing than us and remove humanitarian aid and those kind of commitments. Thank okay, you. well, let's take those two, and then we'll come over to you next. So let's t if you want to come, bring the microphone down, but if you could answer those two. So over to there. So answer these two. Right, okay. Um, Sam, uh, I'm not going to be Prime Minister, so it's very kind of you to ask the, uh, the question. Uh, look, I, well, I would say there are... There are challenges we need to face, and I've talked about some of them, and I think we need Europe's voice to be stronger, uh, even stronger in the world, in dealing with these big global challenges. So they're the ones I just described in answer to the, your question um, uh, at the back. There is the impact that automation, continuing automation, is going to have on our societies. Before I came here this evening, I was on the phone to an Uber driver in Leeds. Um, who they're currently taking a legal case against Uber because, in effect, they say they are working for less than the minimum wage. Now, there's an interesting legal argument, which I'm not qualified to comment on, about you know, their precise employment status. But what was the distinction in the past between you know, black taxis in London, hail on the street? With Uber, you've sort of got a kind of hailing. You're just doing it by pressing your phone, and then if there's an Uber driver near, it's the same impact because they turn up pretty darn quickly. So how are we going to deal with that in Europe? Issues like zero-hours contracts, which works for some people and are very exploitative for other people. So further progression on uh, social and employment rights is one thing that I would like to see since you uh, kindly ask me. Um, well, thank you for saying that. I've spoken with some passion. Uh, I do this quite a lot, you know. Um, because it's what I think and it's what I feel and uh, it is everybody's responsibility to win this referendum. It's not just, it's not mine, it's not Alan Johnson's saying, now Alan, go, go and win this referendum for us. It's your responsibility. It's, it, depending on what your view is, I don't mean to point to anyone who's planning to leave. Uh, we might do a poll at some point during the course of the evening, but it's everybody's responsibility. If you think this is important, go tell your friends. You know, argue in the middle of, well, not in the middle of your lectures, that would be unpopular, but, you know, after the lectures, make the case, make the argument. Um, I think the reason why perhaps we have been less heard is because the media is, is uh, obsessed with the big story, which is, you know, Tories kicking lumps out of Tories. 
blue on blue, as I'm afraid it's known in the trade. And it can be a bit hard to get a look in because that is quite a dramatic uh, battle in these circumstances, actually, as it was in 1975. Uh, I remember the famous, well, occasion when Panorama consisted of my father and Roy Jenkins mm. going head to head on the subject of whether we should remain in the common market. So, anyway, that's just well, the way. I'm sure it's, it's bound to be on YouTube, and it is, you know, visceral stuff. And it's all worth watching. Well, no, there we are. There we are. Um, Look, on me, what's happening in Europe? Well, we see growth in support for parties of the right, and we see growth in support for parties of the left. And why is this? Because history teaches us that at times of uncertainty and economic certainty, uncertainty and stagnant wages and all of the things that people have been experiencing, that's when people tend to move in that direction. And there will be always somebody who comes along, history teaches us, and say from the right, you know you're having a hard time at the moment. Can I tell you why you're having a hard time? It's all the fault of that person over there. We are very sadly all too familiar with that. And that is what, in the end, gave rise to the horror of the Second World War. Now, there are still... Uh, forces of progress uh, in place, the European Parliament, which is why I made the point about their view on TTIP. The truth is we have to work domestically to argue the case for Labour and to try and persuade more people uh, to vote uh, us back into government, but we have to win trust and confidence to do that. And our sister parties in Europe are trying to do the same. We're going to, I hope, we're going to continue to be, well, obviously be part of the United Kingdom, but I hope we're also going to be part of Europe. And it's not an argument, I don't think, to say, because some European countries are voting in parties of the right, now's the time to skedaddle and get out. No, it's the time to roll up our sleeves to try and win the argument for parties not of the right, um, because that's how history teaches us, that's how we make social progress. Okay, there's a question over there, and I'll take two from there. And then I'd like to encourage anybody with a nice sceptical question. I mean, you just hinted at this. Are there any real sceptics? Excellent, I'll come to you next. But I want to take a woman there who's been waiting. No, here, here, here. That's it, the end of the row. Um, Hi, uh, Callum. You're a man, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Sorry. Sorry. My eyesight, not you. My Look, because of my name, there are people who think I'm a woman, so don't yeah, worry sorry, about no, it, all right? right. Um, I wanted to ask, um, what do you think that if Labour were to get into government, do you have worries that what happened to Greece with the bailout and how they tried to fight austerity and they were sort of stricken down by the ECB and Germany and insistence on austerity... Do you worry that the same thing could happen if, the, if you get in, and Jeremy Corbyn get into government? Is that not a concern for the left that the, e, the EU is continuing to force austerity on countries that don't want it? Well, that's the beginning of, an, that's the beginning of a sceptical question, which is good. No, so sure. is the EU just a sort of rich banker's club that damages poor Greece? That's, I think it's, it's one version of it. OK, we'll take the person at the back there with your hand up. Can we get the microphone... Back, back on the aisle, and then I'm going to take the sceptical question or two in pairs as well. All right. 
Um, I have another question. It's not related to the UK, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm from the Netherlands, and we also have our own referendum regarding the association agreement with Ukraine. And one of the questions, one of the biggest debates at the moment is, if it's a referendum, if your government, you're signing some kind of agreement or some kind of proposal, that a referendum can actually say, okay, well, your vote is basically worthless, so you can just always just keep on going and having referendums. Um, if you take the perspective now of the in-and-out referendum, are you, do you have any concerns that say that the referendum is won with like a small margin for Remain, that people will try to instigate another referendum, another referendum, run a referendum, and what we will do with the credibility of the UK when it's negotiating yeah. about any agreement possible? So that was my question. Can yeah. I add to that, which I think is a, 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 a you know, what yeah. happens if this is a 50.01% vote either way? I mean, either way. Sh shall I take, well, uh, let's, uh, since you just asked that, we'll take that and then I'll come back to the, the Greece, your Greece bailout uh, question. Look, in politics, one vote is enough and a result is a result. Now, that doesn't mean that the argument will go away. It was, in 75, it was basically two to one, so it was very, very clear. But I, I genuinely don't think there will be a great appetite to, on the part of the general public, even though those who voted to leave who have lost, to say, yeah, let's, let's do it again. I think there is a difference, in, in part, between... This is a referendum with a real consequence... This is not a vote in which you know, people vote to leave and then think, oh, we'll get a better deal. This is like the Scottish referendum. You vote to leave, we're out. That's it. We're going. And all of the consequences that flow from that will come to pass, all of the uncertainty. With, with treaty change referenda, because a number of European countries require there to be a referendum to approve treaty changes, the history of Europe has been... And this is why the leaders of Europe are so averse to agreeing treaty changes. It's because not everything about Europe is wildly popular with everyone. I, I sometimes have said, if there was a treaty change which was to replace the word A with the word the, and that was put to a vote, some people would say, well, let's, let's just send a message to Europe. We're a bit grumpy about this, that and the other. Let's defeat it. Because it's about something else. But people know the following morning they're still in the European Union, and they've sent a message. And that is why it's proved increasingly difficult for European uh, countries to uh, get treaty change through. I'd make one other point about Europe as an institution, and I suppose it, it would partly answer the, the question that you, you asked earlier about uh, if I was Prime Minister, which I'm not going to be, is the challenge for Europe, and I think for a lot of international institutions, is this. There is the necessity of international cooperation, because self-evidently it's the only way we can deal with some questions. But there's also a thirst for greater devolution of power. Now, I'm a Leeds Member of Parliament. I'm passionate about the devolution of power to the Leeds City region, because I think we can do a better job of the decision-making than it all being concentrated in London, because England, despite the changes we've seen, remains a very, very, very centralised country. There's been devolution to Scotland, Wales, restoration of London self-government. But England has, uh, has not had that experience. And therefore, international organisations, it seems to me, need to get... We've got to balance the one with the other. It's the debate about subsidiarity, um, as it is described. Because if people think, well, a decision is being taken there that doesn't really need to be, 
well, then I think it can undermine faith in the institution itself. And I'll give you a practical example. When I was the Environment Secretary, the European Union wanted to pass a soil directive to handle the way in which we deal with soil. Now, when I last checked, soil doesn't have a tendency to sort of up sticks, move across a European frontier and go to another European country. What was really behind it, environment ministers from some other countries knew they'd never get legislation through their own parliaments to deal with contaminated soil, so they wanted Europe to legislate. Countries like Britain, France and Germany, we already had a system and we didn't want what we regarded as onerous and unnecessary obligations that would arise from the soil directive and in the end we were able to block it. So for me that was an interesting example uh, of where subsidiarity didn't apply but I think the commission is now beginning to get the message. Uh, Am I worried that uh, we would find ourselves in those circumstances? No, because the principal reason why I say no is we're not in the euro. And it was the last Labour government which, in my view, uh, having been a member of it, very sensibly said, we're not joining the euro. And was that a wise decision? You bet it was a wise decision. Now, there are, there are lots of ins and outs of the, uh, what has happened in Greece. And, of course, from the point of view of the German population, the German population, in the end, started saying to Angela Merkel... We seem to be giving the Greeks a, you know, a lot of help, a lot of money, and the Greeks were thinking, well, the Germans are really doing us down. Now, we can go into the history of the terms on which they joined, had they really met the terms for the euro, their tax collection policies, and lots of other things. Uh, but no, to answer your question directly, no, I'm not worried about that. OK, now I want to try a couple of Eurosceptic questions. There's a man at the back, looks very... And do you want to do Eurosceptic? Very good. OK, man at the back. Right, go on. Hi, thank you for your talk. Hi. Um, What's your name? Oliver. Oliver, hi. Hi, Hilary. Um, <laughs> That's the spirit. Yep. <laughs> well, wait for the question. Okay. Um, so, there's lots of short-term economic reasons for staying in the EU. Yep. Um, it would be good if, I, I think you could address perhaps the fear-mongering uh, rebuke which is made that the arguments for staying in the EU are purely made on the short term. Uh, Lots of economists have come out and said, in the long run, and Roger Bootle is one of these economists, has said in the long run, perhaps it's negligible in economic terms whether we stay in or leave. So it's a purely political decision. And, And so my question would then come to, what type of Europe is it that you want to stay in? Um... Joseph Muscat, a couple of days ago, the Prime Minister of Malta, spoke about the Commonwealth in conjunction with the EU, and he spoke about two very different associations of countries. And you could cooperate very closely in an economic sense, or you can cooperate in a very different sense, purely on the basis of ideals. Um, And then I would finally like to ask, do you think that this is a matter about the future of the Eurozone? The arguments against seem to be that we are tying ourselves to the wrong horse. Do you think that the Eurozone is, is binding together two very different groups of countries, the Germanys and the Netherlands, with the southern periphery states? And in fact, it's fundamentally impossible. And I think as a caveat to that, we should consider whether or not Labour, if it were put in power in, say, 5, 10 or 15 years 
if for it, if perhaps Corbyn leaves. But that's leaves. unduly pessimistic, if I may say so, but anyway. Pessimistic for you, perhaps. <laughs> Woods, Very good. Woods Labour imposed the same regulations as we have in the EU that are deterring us from the EU, even if we were outside the EU. Thank you very much. Okay, very good. Okay, ooh, well, that's ooh, it's loads front, of questions, yeah. Thank you. Um, is, this, is this on? Yes, yep. we can right. hear you. Uh, my name is um, uh, a councillor, Jennifer Brathwaite. I'm a, a councillor for Lambeth. Hello, Tony. Um, hello. Look, your argument intellectually makes sense. But emotionally, I think that's perhaps where they fall, fall down. Okay. And um, I, I um, speak to my local residents on a weekly uh, basis, you know, knocking on doors and actually uh, campaigning. And a lot of them are just trying to um, keep a roof over their heads and feed their families. And they connect the, the, um, the, the fact that their wages have stagnated for years with the, um, they, would, they would consider the, the, the um, uh, immigration of, of workers from Eastern Europe. And I was quite taken aback by your statement that it's easy to blame others because that's the only thing they know. That's what they relate to. And it's no good me having an intellectual argument about why is it good for us to stay in Europe when they they experience the uh, negative effects, as they see it, of remaining in Europe. Right. To, is there another one over there? And I would just take I want one more. I'll take a third. And thank you. And that hand woman there. Keep your hand up. Wave it a bit. That's it. Very good. Hi. Is this on? Yeah. Um, my name's Kat. Um, I fundamentally disagree with pretty much everything you've said. <laughs> so um, you okay. probably saw me shaking my head and thinking no. So um, I sort of, you know, thought about what sort of question I could ask that really would touch home. Um, I really believe in the free market, so a free market with the EU would be great. Any free market with any country would be great. But it does concern me that the Labour Party, which is supposed to be the Socialist Party, is actually in line. And you have quoted this, so you have discussed, you know, different businesses supporting staying in the EU. Yeah. By different businesses, we are talking a lot about the large banks, the large corporations, who are pro-EU. So does it not concern you or anyone else in the room that the Labour Party, so the Socialist Party, is actually in line with large corporations? Am I allowed to ask you a question? I don't mean to put you on the spot and you don't have to no, answer no, if you don't fine. want to, but t tell me your reasons why you, presumably, you're going to vote to leave. Right, so I actually can't vote. I oh. am an EU immigrant. Um. <laughs> All right, so how will you... OK, how will you encourage others... How will you encourage others to vote to leave? Whether you vote or not, your views count. Yeah, as yeah much every as view counts. Else. Go on. Go on. How would um, 
So I came here just after the 2006 wave of migration. Um, my family, who have decided to move here, have stayed here since then, and all of us are largely Eurosceptic, so we would prefer a system whereby we stay on a points-based system or a system where we apply for visas and we are treated equally as other members of the society and we are treated equally as other immigrants in this country. So that's kind of... Right. Okay. I, so did, I don't did, think... Did your family come from, presumably not from another EU country? Yeah, from Eastern Europe. So you used free, you took advantage, in the, in the proper yeah. sense, of free movement to come to the UK, but you're not in favour of carrying on with no, it? No, because I believe that it works on a completely discriminatory basis to those outside of the EU. Now, well, that's a very, that you a, that's a very selfless argument. Whether you can or can't hold me Generally, accountable yeah. for the actions of my parents in coming here... I so you'd like more global migration, in effect on the kind of equal terms with EU migration? Absolutely. I'm not against migration. Okay. I'm completely for migration, but okay. on equal terms for everyone. Okay. Right. I don't see why I'm a more valuable member of society here than a doctor from India. Okay. I don't, well, I, I don't think it's... Uh, it, it's not a competition between the two. And, and since you mention doctors, I mean, if you look at our health service and look at the range of countries within the European Union and outside the European Union who are helping to provide us with health care from all over the world. And that is, a, that is a great thing. The rules of the club are free movement is part of Europe. It's part of free movement, uh, part of the common market in 1975. Some people forget that. In voting to remain in the common market in 1975, people were voting in favour of free movement of workers because it's been a, a founding uh, principle in those um, uh, circumstances. And I... Uh, I certainly don't see it as two classes of uh, migrants. And I say that as I am the son of a migrant. My mother, that you mentioned at the beginning, Tony, came from America. I say this on the doorstep sometimes when people question me. And uh, I get a slightly funny look because they don't quite understand what I'm talking about when I say I'm the son of a migrant. But I am. Uh, in those circumstances. Now, Jennifer, you've, you've raised... A, a absolutely fundamental question because I have the same conversations to the one that you have. And I... Now, you described it as an intellectual argument. Uh, I see it as an intensely practical argument because jobs, growth and investment is practical. And just responding to your other point, why do I think that business is important? Because I, I, I look at the people in my constituency, where do they work? They work in, in the public sector, but they also work in business. It gives them jobs. It gives them income. Do we want business to do well to create more jobs, more better paid jobs? Do we want investors to come in to our country and to our city? Of course we do. Burberry, a great global brand, is building a brand new factory in the heart of my constituency in Holbeck, uh, and it will export all over the world. It will move workers from elsewhere in Yorkshire, but it will create 250 new jobs. Now, as a Labour Member of Parliament, I'm ashamed in saying, well, I think that's a great thing, because I want the young people who live in my constituency to share in the prosperity of the great city that is Leeds. I want more people to share in that prosperity. So I don't feel embarrassed at all by saying it is in the interests of my constituents, our community, our society, that business prospers 
And the fact that business says we're going to prosper more if we stay in the European Union is, to me, a very strong argument for staying in. Now, you are right about the stagnation of wages for some people. I got into a cab a year ago at Leeds Bradford Airport um, and started asking the, the guy who was driving how things were going, and he said to me, I'm now having to work more hours a week because there's another bloke in the cab behind me who's prepared to do it for less. So you're right. From his point of view, this is the cold wind of competition and it has been not good for him. But there are other reasons why our wages uh, have stagnated and that is to do with the global economic crash. And um, look, I I would say this about the global economic crash. When banks were offering people mortgages for five to six times their salary for 120% of the value of the property, question, who was to blame for that? Was it the bank or the building society for offering? Was it the person for taking it? Or was it the government for allowing it to happen? And I think the honest answer is all three were responsible. And we were particularly badly hit by the global economic crash because we were particularly dependent on the financial services industry for tax revenue that was generated. So when the whole ship went down we had a bigger difficulty to deal with, but I would say uh, also in an unashamed way that the action that the last Labour government took to protect people's savings, to keep people in their homes by bringing forward the uh, mortgage interest support, uh, and in the end when we left, um, the economy was actually growing. Anyway, that's just a small advert because history has been rewritten subsequently about what happened. And if we'd taken the advice of David Cameron and George Osborne, If you want a recession to turn into depression, you'd have followed their advice in those circumstances. Um, The the other thing I would say is we need to address those issues that your constituents raise. For example, if you've got employment agencies that are only employing from other EU countries, well, I'm afraid that is not right and it should be stopped, and that was in our election manifesto. The reason we uh, introduced a minimum wage... Last Labour government did it. The reason we campaigned for a living wage is because we want to see everybody's wages, particularly at the, uh, the bottom end, uh, improve. We're now having a debate in our society, and rightly so, about the way in which all taxpayers are subsidising low wages. Why is the housing benefit bill £23 billion a year? Because many of my constituents cannot afford to pay the rent, feed their families, because of the level of rents and the level of their income. What is that a powerful argument for building more houses, and in particular, building more council houses? And one thing that uh, Jeremy has said since he's come in is, we will lift the borrowing cap on local authorities, right, which is something I'm sure you've campaigned for, so that we can build more council houses, because you take someone out of a more expensive rented property, generation rent, and you move them into a less costly, in rent per week, council house, and the public purse saves money, because we're not paying the money to the landlord, and the person is benefiting of, from an increase in their income because they're living... So, that is, so we, it's not just about the EU referendum. You also need a government that is going to be on your side and make that happen. Now, ooh, Oliver, right. I can't quite read my notes here. Um, uh, right, first of all, yes, your point about the short term versus the long term. Well, now who was it who said in the long term we're all dead? Oh, there we are, Keynes. Well, there we are. So, Pardon? Sorry, was that a heckle? I didn't quite... Oh, fine. Anyway. Um, 
I, I am not an economist, so I say that uh, openly, but I listen very carefully to those who argue, including business, who say it is in our better economic interest to stay in. And I don't see why, because we're in, we cannot benefit. What is it about going out that is going to enable our economy to benefit? Unless it is an argument made by people who want rid of regulation. Now, Chris Grayling, who's uh, campaigning for leave, was on the telly with me the other week, and the interviewer said to him, now, he said, I don't like all this red tape and regulation, he said. So the interviewer asked him, okay, so give us an example of the red tape and regulation you don't like. And I kid you not, do you know what he said? Health and safety. Well, exactly. Do I regard health and safety laws as regulation and red tape? No. I regard it as protecting you and me and all of us when we go to work. So I don't see that. But there are those who want Britain to be a kind of offshore, low-regulation nation. Uh, It may explain why some hedge fund managers are funding the Leave campaign. It'd be interesting to ask them what kind of vision they see for uh, the future. And on the Commonwealth and the EU, yes, they are different organisations, and we are bound together by reasons of history and shared values with the Commonwealth. Uh, We are bound together with the European Union by our membership and the advantages that it brings. We are obviously um, a member of the um, United Nations Security Council as a permanent member. We're in the WTO. We, We have lots of overlapping relationships because that's what they are. And I don't accept the argument that somehow you've got to choose between one or the other because I think all of them in different ways bring benefits to us, amplify, strengthen our voice in the world and I think we would weaken it by walking off into whatever sunset the Leave campaign has in mind for us. Okay, I'll take one, just one question. We need to finish at eight, so... Oh, right. Ooh. Woman here. Thank you. Hello, Henry, I'm Gillian. Sorry, can you hear me? Gillian. Yes. Gillian. Hi. Hi. Um, you've told us about the economic benefits of being in the EU uh-huh. uh, at length, and you mentioned very, uh, sm- in a very small way that that has been at the cost of some level of um, sovereignty. How much sovereignty would you be prepared to give up in order to keep those EU benefits? At what point would you say it's not worth it? Right, Okay. Well, look, I, I, would, I would answer your question like this. We, in 1975, the, uh, the No campaign, there were, there were three booklets published. Some people here will remember. There was the No campaign, which was mainly brown with a bit of yellow. There was the Yes campaign, which was mainly yellow with a bit of brown. And then there was a red, white and blue from the government that set out the government's case. And in the No campaign booklet, it said, if we stay in... Britain will, in effect, cease to exist as a country. We'll live in a country called Europe. Now, do you think that we live in a country called Europe? And I'll cite some examples. The the answer I gave to to your question, we are not in the euro. So if we were on a sort of ratchet, which said we're being sucked, you know, a bit like... um, I'm sure James Bond has got into a terrible pickle where he's been sucked into some machine that's going to 
cut him to bits. I can't remember which particular theme that was. I remember the laser. and Anyway, but we'll leave that on one side for the moment. Uh, the fact is, have we been sucked ever more into this vortex called Ever Closer Union? Well, no, we haven't, because we didn't join the euro. Are we members of the Schengen Agreement? No, because it didn't work for us. And I suppose, because you also raised the point, and I apologise for not responding to it, it is possible, it seems to me, for all of the members of the European Union to coexist with some wanting to go in a slightly uh, faster direction, while at the same time others saying, well, that's not quite for me. We opted into the European arrest warrant, exercising our sovereignty, and we opted out of a number of other justice and home affairs measures. So it seems to me that that illustrates uh, those three examples in particular, that it's not, right, we all jump and we all move together. We are able to uh, express our independence and our sovereignty in those respects, but for the other things, we have chosen uh, to do this. Now, I suppose it's a it's a hypothetical question in the end because it depends what the uh, EU would propose to do. But I think what we have at the moment works in our interests for all the reasons that I tried to express in my remarks right at the beginning. And since this is the last question and this is my last answer, um, are you all going to vote? Good. Right? No, no, just checking, you know, because there's... <laughs> Because, you, because there are some people saying, oh, I'm not sure, don't know. This really, 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 really matters, and it is about your future. So if you, if you feel that we should remain, go spread the word. We live in a democracy. If you think we should leave, well, then go and argue your case. Um, may the best argument win, uh, and I hope it's remain. And thank you very much for coming this evening.